You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mort Siebert and I, Nils Kastrolarsen, where we each week take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now today, we are recording on the 4th of July, so to all of you celebrating this holiday, we wish you all the best and thank you for your continued support. We know that there is a lot of choice when it comes to business podcasts today, and we are thrilled that you choose to tune in to Top Traders Unplugged each week. If this is the first time we meet... Our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog of all of the past episodes that you may have missed. Moritz, how are you doing? It's good to be back with you. Good to be back with you. Doing great. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Holiday started. Moved up to Denmark. Good. It's raining. It's cold. Not good. <laughs> Maybe not so good anyways, but there we are. But it was, by the way, speaking of good, it was a good week for the Fed 500. Sorry, I meant to say the S&P 500 <laughs> as well as the uh, other risk-on assets, despite many countries, of course, reporting record numbers of daily infections in their battle against COVID-19. And it certainly looks like that kind of these V-shaped recoveries have come to dominate the memories of most investors you know, saved by the central banks. That's really the narrative right now. And I think a lot of investors actually look at March 2020 in the same way they look at March 2009, when the great financial crisis came to an end, at least for the for the stock markets. Um, and um, what is really fascinating is the speed of this particular recovery. It's kind of astonishing. So I'll give you a little bit of trivia today. So we had three crises that we, I think most of our listeners and, and ourselves, we can certainly remember. So we had the dot-com bubble back in the year 2000. So it lost about 47.5%. It took 307 days to recover half of that. And it took 705 days to recover 75% of that loss. Then we move on to the global financial crisis. That was a little bit deeper, so it lost 55% roughly. But it was quicker. So it uh, recovered the 50% uh, in 153 days. And it only took 453 days to recover 75% of that drawdown. And then comes the global pandemic. Obviously, a, a not as deep a crisis, still 34%. It only took 15 days to recover 50%. And it only took 50 days to recover 75%. So it's pretty amazing, really, when you see how this particular V-shaped recovery has uh, moved along, at least in terms of the speed. But, you know, who knows? Maybe investors will realize later that this time really is different. Another thing that caught my attention this week is just generally the optimism that you see in so many parts of the financial markets. For instance, there's something called the Renaissance U.S. IPO Index, that made a, a new high at the end of June. And interestingly enough, just before we had the market high in February, a couple of months before, we saw that IPOs with negative earnings jumped to 83%. And this surpasses the 81%, which was in year 2000. So again, it doesn't really matter if companies make money or not. 
will buy them on their IPO, it seems. Um, so it is kind of crazy times, frankly. What about you, Moritz? How was your week? Are you making sense of everything at the moment? <laughs> As if I ever did. Um, <laughs> I, actually, I like the Fed 500, uh, what you just said. I think I stole did. it from Wayne. I know. It's, uh, it's, I saw his tweet. It's yeah. the brainchild of Wayne Himmelstein, a good friend. Uh, he, he coined the term, but I think it's very appropriate. Anyhow, you know, I had one of those weeks, those quote-unquote weeks, where I'm losing more than 2%, so 2.5% down this past week, a bit more than 3% down now year-to-date. And again, another week where almost nothing worked. So the losing positions, they were all on the short side. There have been some exceptions, but the exceptions were super, super tiny, right? So the significant losses from this week, short corn, short crude, short cotton, short carbon, short cattle, short China A50, whatever, right? All of the things on the short side just didn't work. So it's, it's, it's a pattern that I have observed many times, not only this year, but in years before, and um, it repeated itself this past week. Almost no winning positions. I mean, teeny tiny things here and there, right? A couple of basis points, but nothing really to speak, uh, to speak of. And one that was a bit more significant, I have a long position in wheat uh, that made a bit more money, uh, but all the others were just super tiny. I exited the short carbon trade for about half an hour loss, and I reversed on the Chinese equities. I've been short, I'm now long. So let's see. It is. Um, it continues to be interesting. Yes, no, it, it does indeed. I mean, I would say uh, on our side, very similar week, uh, losing week, or I would say a correction week. Nothing, nothing too dramatic. But again, when you look at the attributions of the various markets, definitely most of the markets provided small losses. Actually, on our side, corn did have a reasonable loss, so to speak. That was really where most of the pain was. But then. Financials were mixed. Uh, Nasdaq did well. Volatility did well. The German chats, to bring it home to your country, did very well. So, um, but nothing too exciting. Uh, of course, it's summer holiday. It's a week. It's a long weekend for our U.S. friends. So, um, we had some uh, unemployment numbers out this week that didn't seem to do much either. So, so uh, yeah, just a quiet week overall. But it was interesting. I mean, we talk a lot about this sort of positioning, and uh, and I think actually on this week on on macro voices, you had Charlie McElliott from Numura on, and I unfortunately I missed it. I didn't listen to it yet, but I always think it's interesting to hear what people who are not CTAs, but obviously they sit and they watch flows and and, and so on and so forth, and what they make out of CTAs, how they should be or how they must be positioned. And of course, the impact that these flows may have or these changes to positions. And to me, it's interesting because if I look on, on our side, I haven't seen our risk budget so low before. So we, we're we not doing much either way. So anyone claiming that the CTA is trading at least like we do are uh, impacting the markets would be wrong, I would say. But then also on a personal note, I do see from another investment bank, I do see their replicate a model of trend following and then they also list actually all their CTA clients how they are positioned it's interesting because these replicator models are not necessarily agreeing with what the actual positions are from CTAs but we are a little bit I guess at an inflection point certainly you know in things like equities right because 
most ETAs went obviously short after the uh, the sell-offs and uh, have kind of slowly seen positions or short positions being reduced and, and some obviously being flipped now to small longs. So it is interesting to see, but I don't think in terms of volume, I just can't believe that CTAs are doing a lot of the trading at the moment. Well, what do you think about these things? How's your portfolio sort of evolving? I have a few comments on that. I mean, those type of reports and, you know, we it's, it's uh, Charlie McCallie at... Um... Marco Kalanovich from JP Morgan, I think, is very well known. I think most of the banks now have a quantitative research report that comes out of their QIS or quant trading departments that focus on the positioning of CTAs, risk parity, vol control, 60-40, whatever type of portfolios, and how those portfolios may change as markets evolve or volatilities become lower or higher and, you know, these type of things. Well, one observation I have is, first off, I think those models probably by necessity and design, they need to be kept simple, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we have nothing against simple models, but what I want to say is they may not necessarily accurately reflect uh, what's really happening in our space. And I say that because I've observed quite a few times that whatever those reports were saying about positions didn't really match with my portfolio, right? And... It is one thing, and, and this may be very accurate to say, you know, if you are a large broker dealer and you uh, cater to CTAs and you know they are trend-following CTAs, well, you can report what their positions are on day T. You just know it, right? You know it. You look. You have a look at the books and you can observe that, you know, there are long bonds and short equities or whatever the case may be, right? But what you cannot do as easily is forecast that tomorrow their position will change by whatever it will change from the long to the short side or that their position size will reduce or not because the bank doesn't know the models. I'd be very surprised if they had the IP and they really had, you know, look into the code and all of that, right? So it's it's maybe an educated guess, but a guess nevertheless. So always take these things with a little bit of salt, a pinch of salt, even though in the last couple of years, those reports and the people writing them, have gotten quite a lot of praise, sometimes at least, for the accuracy of those reports, allegedly, right? Saying, okay, now it's time to buy the dip. We've heard this, right? Or we've read this in these reports and it turned out to be true. I guess at some point there will be a day of reckoning where the buy the dip mentality may no longer work. I don't know, but this is just my view on these reports. I read them, I find them interesting, but I also step back from them and, like I say, take them with a grain of salt. The funny thing to me is that I just don't know exactly why so many people would be interested in, in seeing them. I mean, um, they're not going to trade after them, in my opinion. That would be suicide because, as you say, you don't really know when the models flip. You don't, you don't really really know in terms of risk budgeting how to do it anyways. And we know that for the most part, 60, 65% of the trades CTAs do are going to be losing trades. So. So, yeah, I just I find it interesting that there is so much narrative about what CTAs are doing, because I think it's incredibly uninteresting, really, from a market perspective. But you're right. I mean, a lot of firms, bigger firms uh, have groups that look at this stuff and publish it and talk about it. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always, you know, a hypothesis, I think, you know, you may say that if the Fed 500 continues to go up, right, and if volatilities continue to go down, then at some point, the long positioning of CTAs and equities will increase. Well, I guess that's a correct statement, but it doesn't 
tell you when exactly that's going to happen, right? So like you say, trading off of that information and kind of like looking to position yourself in anticipation of that happening, you just don't know how to do that and when to do it. Yeah, and, 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 and it often leads just to criticism, meaning that people will say, oh, I, I saw that on so-and-so report. CTAs were the longest in equities that they've been for a while. And look at, you know, look at what a big correction we had just after that. But that is exactly what we're meant to do. I mean, we are meant to be super long just before the turn. I mean, that's how it works, because if markets are going up or have been going up for a while, that's how we build up the position. So anyways, it's just... By definition, right? And it's, By definition, and, right. And, and the same is true on the other side of the trend, what we yeah. have just seen with the V, right? I mean, the V, as far as I'm concerned, the V is, is in or almost in. It's in the markets. It may not be in the economy, right? Maybe maybe just in this as, as an aside, but um, looking just at my, at my home country here, Germany, obviously, as people know, a big backbone of our economy is the automotive sector. And I know a couple of people working in that business, and uh, they all say, you know, Moritz, it's devastating. The V may be in partly in the share price of the DAX or the S&P 500, and maybe even some auto companies. Well, Tesla has definitely more than a V. Tesla has made, by the way, a new all-time high. It's north of, you know, 1,100. It's an I, I, Exactly. So I don't think that's, that's, you know, people probably look at this as a tech company and everything that has to do with tech is up these days, right? You put it in the tech box and it's up. If it's in the auto box, it's down. But what my friends are telling me in that industry is we're going to be letting people go. There's almost no orders for new cars. If anything, it's a little bit from China. The truck industry isn't replacing their trucks as frequently, and they're not rolling over from old trucks to new trucks by the same schedule that they previously did, right? They kind of like go like, well, I'm going, I'm going to ride that old lemon for a year longer, right? It's a yeah. diesel truck. It'll hold together, right? So let's just do it one or two, two years more. That type of stuff. And, and the same, by the way, I think is true for banks. You know, you've probably... Uh, yesterday there was the announcement that the uh, the board of Commerce Bank is resigning. You know, look at their share price. I think it's you know down to three-ish or something like that, right? All of the banks are in bad shape. The automotive companies are in bad shape. A lot of the manufacturing firms are in really bad shape, right? Yes, they have been helped and they they continue to being helped uh, by the government with loans, with grants, with you know tax reductions, this, that, and the other thing. But it may be. I'm not saying it is. Like I say, we never forecast, but it may be cosmetics for a time being. And then at some point, the ugly face of that recession will really show and those companies will just be in, in a dire state. Um, and if that, if that shines through, then I'd be very surprised if, well, maybe the market just continues to go up because the Fed is putting money into the markets. It's weird in a way. It is weird, and and you know what else is is weird. I um, so just just staying on on sort of various industries that are certainly being hit hard by by what's happening, and of course we don't wish anything bad for anyone uh, working in these industries. So it is really sad to see, but there's also some really you know weird things going on. So I saw in the news this morning that one of the Middle East and one of the large Middle Eastern airlines they now require people not just to wear face masks, but to wear one of these face shields. Like, you know, you see in the hospitals where you get like this plastic thing covering completely your your face. And I just can't, can you imagine being on a plane for hours sitting with something like that? I mean, 
I, for one, would be claustrophobic before takeoff. Yeah, I'm, I'm I mean, telling you, I'm not doing it. And, and you know, I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm all for the safety and health and all of that, right? So when you go out, wear a mask, all fine, sure. right? But at the same time, and, and even though, you know, I know people in Asia are so much more used to wearing masks than Western Europeans are because we've never had it in our lives, right? right? And now people are walking around with masks. And if you go to a restaurant, then the waiter has a, a visor, essentially. Right? And they, exactly, they, that's what I meant. They, visor, it, yeah. it, it looks like from, you know, R2-D2, Star Trek type yes. of movie, badly done. Sorry, Star Wars. And to me, this is, it's kind of like killing the experience in a way. And so I really want my favorite restaurants, all the restaurants that are doing business, I want them to survive. I want to be able to go back at some point. I, I'd, I'd hate it if, you know, they go out of business, the bars and all of that, right? But at the same time, so yeah, do some takeout, right? Support your local restaurant by calling in and and saying, hey, I, I really like that pizza and, you know, whatever it is that you like and, and, and pick it up and eat it at home. But to me, the experience just isn't the same and I can really skip it. I don't want to be in a restaurant with all these visors and plexiglass separations between desks. I'd, I'd then rather stay at home and enjoy my dinner sure. here with, with a good glass of wine. So different and unusual. And, and just going back to kind of different, unusual and, and crazy all in one. So another story I picked up this morning was that apparently, and I, I, I apologize, I forget where it was, where they had done this. But in some, and I, I'm thinking Asia again, and don't get me wrong, but they do things differently to, than, than what we do. So people were missing the travel, really, at least if you do it for business on a, on a frequent basis, you kind of don't miss it. But anyway, a lot of people are missing the experience of, of traveling. So a group of people had organized now fake travel. So what they had done, because all these airports are completely empty, right? So they had offered that people could come, they could show up at the airport with their suitcase and they could do the check-in like they would normally do. They would board the plane, they just wouldn't fly. <laughs> and they had 7,000 people signing up for this fake trip. And I'm just thinking, this I, is crazy. I, I don't know why people have anything better I to mean, do than that. I mean, honestly, it's kind of oh like... Maybe you get some yeah. synthetic background radiation as well because you don't take off, and they kind of like you know they oh, they yeah. X-ray you a little bit so that you, <laughs> so that you're not missing out of the background radiation that you normally get yeah. when you sit on a plane. But yeah. look, um, to me it's to me it's really I I just hope that we'll be able to go back to let's just call it normal. All right, well whatever normal is going yeah. to be. I mean, right now the virus is with us. It's it's still there. It hasn't gone away. I think you know even though. Yeah, it's the 4th of July holiday for for the U.S. and, uh, you know, wish everyone a, a great long weekend. You know, there have been, I think, more than 50,000 infections per day now in the United States, states which is a new high. It's, it's a new peak. It's higher than what has been uh, recorded in April, which I think was the last peak. And so what does that mean? It means the virus, A, is still there, right? And... We don't have a vaccine. We may have discovered or, you know, tested out a couple of medications that have some effects. But to the best of my knowledge, there is not a single COVID-19 medication. If you take that medication, you will be safe. That doesn't exist yet, right? Which in retrospect, which in, you know, in reverse then means that if there's 50,000 infections today and, and if it's kind of like the same mortality rate, the same outcomes that we had previously two to three weeks down the road, you will see that showing up in the numbers. You don't see it today because most of the people don't die instantaneously, 
right? It's not kind of like a 24, 48-hour type of event. You get infected by the virus. It may take two, three, four, whatever weeks, and then you'll see it. So it is just testament to the fact that this virus is still there, and we have to be cautious, stay safe. But at the same time, I just hope that rather sooner than later, we'll find something, a vaccine, good medication, so that we can back, go back to a more normal life. And I don't think that normal is going to be the normal that we used to have before the virus. It's going to be, yes, normal, but a new kind of normal, where people, because we've experienced it, this is now in our brains, you know, we've, we went through that type of stuff. I guess we'll be more aware of situations like that. And maybe some of the behaviors that we had previously will change. Uh, for the better, I hope, right? Um, for the better of nature, for the environment, things, there, there may be some positive outcomes out of that. But I hope we'll get there soon. Yeah, no, I think we, we, we all do. And, and time will tell. It certainly is very unpredictable. Just before we move on, we've got a couple of questions, and I'm sure you may have also some things you want to bring up. But I did catch one other thing that I wanted to share this week, and uh, so if people haven't watched it, um, but Ray Dalio did something on the Bridgewater Associates YouTube page this week where it's not a real, uh, well, it is a real interview, but it's not uh, where you see them uh, in, in real life. It's kind of a, a slideshow that shows what they're saying but to listen to to someone like Ray Dalio being so concerned I think is fair to say about you know what the economy is going to look like going forward uh, which is something I actually personally share um, you know in terms of what we are in for for the next five or ten years I don't think it's going to be pretty by any stretch of the imagination but it's it, it was another interesting conversation and I think it's worth listening to someone with that uh, level of uh, knowledge and, and depth of research that they do anyways. I have one thing to mention about two yeah. other, we'll call them hedge fund managers. Yeah. One, and this is just, uh, you know, reporting reporting what has been reported in the news earlier this week, um, John Paulson, who came to fame during the global financial crisis for massively being short the housing market, obviously benefiting from it, right. has yeah. converted or is about to convert his hedge fund John Paulson Company into a family office, as have mm -hmm. many others, more capital, bacon, and so forth, right? Many others have done the same in, in recent years. And the other name I want to drop is um, Jim Simons of Renaissance mm -hmm. Technologies. And this morning, just before breakfast, everybody here was still sleeping. I had a look at Twitter and found a link to a video to a speech, probably one and a half hour speech that he gave. And it's one of the speeches of uh, Jim Simons that I hadn't discovered yet. And, you know, I'm, I'm always super keen watching things, watching videos of Jim Simons and, you know, what he has to say. So this one, I retweeted it. So if people follow me on Twitter, they'll find it. It's a good one. But one of the things that he said during this speech is never, ever override the computer signal. You know, what the computer tells you to do in terms of what trades or uh, positions to take in the market that is the signal, right? We're not questioning that signal. We don't override it. Why? Because we cannot simulate it. And then I thought, well, that's interesting because that recording is from 2014. But earlier this year, or maybe it was late last year, we had this book come out, The Man Who Solved the Markets uh, by Gregory Suckerman, right? About Renaissance Technologies and Jim Simons yep. in particular. And I think in this book, if I remember correctly, there have been two chapters or two instances where... Jim Simons actually did overwrite the model. 
Yeah. And I'm not sure exactly when it was, maybe during the LTCM crisis. I'm, I'm, I may be completely wrong there, but I think I, I remember correctly that there have been two episodes where they did override the model because um, things appeared to them crazy in the markets and they just did something else than what the model uh, told them to do. Oh, yeah, it's like what we tell our kids, you know, don't do what uh, what we do, do what we say. Yes, Or correctly. something like that, right? <laughs> so anyways, good stuff. Let's jump to a couple of questions and then we'll see where we are. So this is one is a bit longer, but I'll, I'll read the, the whole thing. It's from Will. He says, I'm an independent trader based in Vancouver, Canada. My trading journey has been around 12 years. I recently allocated more than half of my portfolio to algo trading since the last two years. My key learning from my trades and very possible sources, including your awesome uh, podcast. Um, thanks very much for that kind comment, Will. Anyways, my Algo portfolio involved multiple models for look back and trades on time frame between one day and I think he says 30 months. Trading US indices, US pair, US dollar pairs, yen cross rates, 70% trend following, 30% mean reversion. My portfolio is performing well, 30% per year so far. Uh, well done, Will. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Where can we buy it? However, as I want to move all my investments towards systematic, I'm thinking of expanding the variances of my model. In my situation, would you focus on developing more new models, question mark, or would you rather focus on expanding, expanding to other time frames, or perhaps even look at more markets such as energies and soft commodities with your experiences how would you what would you prioritize and then he says in the meantime could you recommend any data sources for different asset classes reliable data sources would allow me to diversify and smooth my trading journey which is very exciting okay moritz um hmm. what are your thoughts all of the above i would recommend to do so he was mentioning additional time frames, additional markets, and additional systems, different types of systems, right? And I think all of that is good ideas. If you can find a system that you're happy with that is uncorrelated to your existing systems, and let's just say it's not a trend-following system. You know, Niels and I, we do like our trend-following systems, but uh, we're completely, we acknowledge the fact that not everybody is 100% trend following, right? And there's multi-strategy funds out there and people diversify different systems into a portfolio, maybe systematic carry, systematic value, whatever the case may be. At the end of the day, it depends, are you happy with those type of systems? Is this what you want? But if it is something that you want and it's not correlated to your trend following system, and it has a positive expectancy, I mean, you know, it has a positive shop ratio, it has a an annual growth rate that's positive, you know, you, you're okay with the drawdowns, all of that, then okay, by all means, add it to your portfolio, right? If your capital allows you to do so, because it should produce and will mathematically produce a better outcome if the correlation isn't perfect, i.e. not one, and you have a, a positive expectancy on that system. And you can leverage up to the same level of fall. So that's a good idea. And then I've, I've said many times, adding more markets to the system in a clever way, you know, really independent markets, I think this is what's important. Pick things that really 
uh, don't have anything to do with each other. Emissions and, I don't know, the DAX index. That, that's great. Do it, right? Trade more markets. You will have more opportunities to find trends because there's just more stuff in your portfolio that will zig when other markets zag. And different time frames. Oh, yeah. I mean, this will, this will make your trend following system smoother in a way. I'm not saying that will make it necessarily better because, you know, from our research, we know there's kind of like boundaries to the upside and to the, you know, to the top side and the downside of those time windows. If you're becoming too short with your time windows, then in my experience, it's becoming more and more difficult to actually milk out a return of those markets after all costs, slippage and stuff is considered, right? So there's probably a, a limit to the downside there on those faster systems, or you have to be really, really good at that with, you know, very efficient execution or exchange memberships. There's a couple of firms who do that really well, but for like a do-it-yourself type of trader, it's going to be very difficult. But adding different timeframes together will, of course, smooth, smooth the portfolio return because those timeframes aren't correlated by one. So you'll, some, some of the timeframes will work a bit better at some times. For instance, some of the shorter term models may have worked much better with the V-shaped recovery, right? Whereas some of the longer terms model, you know, they just take so much more time before they, you know, become short equities and then they get short equities when the thing has turned around. But at the same time, you know, we sometimes see trends that last really long. Bond markets, for instance, where, you know, a really slow trend following model is a good thing to have in your portfolio. So it's all of the above. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, generally speaking, Will, um, of course, I agree with what uh, Moritz just said. So I'm going to take it from a slightly different angle. Firstly, let me answer your question about different asset classes. Data sources, I mean, obviously, there are plenty of data sources. But if you do what we do, which is trade everything via futures, the people at CSI, for example, um, you can get cheap data with lots of uh, history on futures markets, uh, on all asset classes, meaning commodities as well as financial markets. So that's maybe a place to start in terms of that. One thing I would say as well is that if you are embarking on trying to change your system, firstly, I would say, I mean, if the performance you quote, right, 30% per annum so far, why change anything? I mean, that would be my first question. But the secondly, and 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 I, and, and I also agree with what Moritz is, is saying, maybe you just consider at least not changing anything in your current model and you kind of build a new one and you run in parallel because if you found something that for whatever reason and i i, I imagine that that the, the returns you're referring to that you all also can see those in in some kind of back test that it's just because if it's only two years i mean who knows i mean it could be as, as more says there's been a v-shaped recovery and we've had um you know if you were trading like a simple 10-day breakout system you probably would have made tons of money this this year because the, the, the trends had follow through you just had to get into the signal and just stay with it so so you can't really just say two years as as a uh, as a guide for what the system is capable of doing but if your back test suggests returns like that then again i would say you know make sure you keep doing that for sure and then build something that is more diversified um, has many more time frames markets whatever and see if you can replicate or improve but also, I also think we have to be realistic and, and those kind of returns are not to be expected unless you run very high levels of risk. 
so don't try and be too clever is my other uh, piece of advice. As we often say, good enough is good enough. So, um, but good luck with that journey. It seems like you're at least off to a good start. Abhishek sent us an email and he's saying here, I'm a futures trader currently trading only equity futures, trend following strategy. I have a trading universe of 35 stocks. Question, I often hear you talking about diversification into different sectors, sectors being referred to as equity, commodity, currency, bonds. But can't one just diversify into various sectors within equity? Example, auto, pharma, financial services, consumer, durables, etc., etc. I understand that diversification is key for trend followers because we don't know where the next big move will come from. But given a limited amount of capital, I have to stick to just equity futures as of now. So let me kick off with that one, Abhishek. Of course, at the end of the day, we all have to adhere to what our financial constraints are. So uh, if if that's what you can do, then I think it's better to have more sectors and more different stocks like Jerry talks about from time to time. He said he's basically picked four or five different equities from different sectors to give him some level of diversification. However, the key difference, Abhishek, and I'm sure you know this, I kind of feel I can tell from your question, and that is you also know that when things happen in markets like we've just seen, whether you're a pharma company or whether you're an auto company, correlations often go to one and that's usually to the downside and so yes these things can appear different at many you know 99% of the time but there is that 1% where they all correlate and and then that's where you have nowhere to hide so to speak so so I agree step one would be to diversify as much as you can within equities but step two would be then to try and move on to adding truly uncorrelated markets to the portfolio that would be my my view. What say you, Moritz? What say I? I think, um, like you, Niels, it's a good idea. We know Jerry, as you said, you know, mentioned it a couple of times on the podcast, he's into the single stocks. We have interviewed, remember, Eric Curtinton, who spoke to us about trading the sectors, for which I think there's liquid futures contracts for most of them, at least their ETFs, right? And I, I, I think that's probably a good idea to do. It's... Um, you know, if you can get the diversification out of them and treat them differently, yeah, you know, the the automotive sector uh, may be a laggard right now and the tech sector is, uh, you know, uh, steaming ahead, then that may be beneficial. So it's, um, it's definitely a thing that people, I believe, should try out and um, see what's in it for them. But did Eric also say something about that you shouldn't just willy-nilly pick an index, for example? I mean, it's something to do with whether it was equally weighted or cap-weighted. There was a difference between how it performed. Or did you do you remember anything about that? Uh, there, there probably is a difference. Well, there surely is a difference in terms of how they perform, right? Um, but I, I don't think there's a, say, equally weighted sector uh, index future available. I'm not sure. I've, I'm, I'm not no, trading. No. I'm not trading them. But I think they're they are like the spider type of sectors or whatever select type of sectors of the S and P 500. But market cap weighted, I presume. Yeah. Well, uh, otherwise, I appreciate go back and listen to our conversation with Eric Crittenden a few weeks ago. Maybe it's a couple of months now, uh, because he did talk about something that at least his research had found. So it might be worth just double checking that episode. Okay, final question we have in today is from Noah. Noah writes, I've been listening to your podcast for several months and really appreciate and enjoy it. You and your guests provide a lot of thoughtful and informative content. So we appreciate that, Noah. 
I had a question I was hoping you could provide your perspective on. Based on your podcast and other research I read, it seems that there is... And by the way, Moritz, I thought this was going to be a quiet conversation, 4th of July, nothing nothing too meaty. And now comes this question. Based on your podcast and other research I read, it seems that there's a lot of CTAs that use a volatility targeting approach in portfolio construction. It also seems like this is a development that evolved, at least in part, from the preferences of institutional investors. What is your view on volatility targeting? If you were to start managing a pool of assets with no constraints imposed from outside investors, would you use volatility targeting in portfolio construction? Thank you, Nora. I mean, I'm sure you know, Nora, but this is one of our pet peeves where we get into some really good discussions. Um, so uh, so thanks for bringing that up. It's at least been two weeks since we we uh, spoke about it more. It's, what's your view today? Oh, my, yeah. So, of course, it has completely changed my view. I'm, uh, I'm all in favor of vault targeting. Ha, ha, ha. So, Noah, I mean, we're, we're into episode 95 of our podcast, I guess, uh, Probably out of the 95 and 90, we did speak about uh, vol targeting, so we're happy to do it again. So to me, volatility targeting or the, the vol control mechanism, right, where you up and down your position size as a function of recent market volatility. This is how most people do it, right? They calculate the historical volatility of a market and then of their portfolio, or maybe even of a sector that they have in their portfolio. And if that volatility has risen, they will decrease their position size because they want to have a realized portfolio volatility that's matching a predefined target level. Now, this is an overlay to me. This is not a core part of a trend-following system. You know, when I when I do a trend-following trade because I take a breakout to the upside, then, yeah, I can count this as a trade. This is, this is the signal that my system provided, I took the signal, it produces a certain position size, and then, you know, it either works or it doesn't work. And I can count that trade. But if I have that trade on, and then I start changing that trade after the fact, right? So the breakout has been made, I now have a size on, and now I'm playing around with that size up or down. Then, first off, I'm struggling about what to do with those type of trades. How do I count them? Because some of them will produce losses, some of them will produce gains, but it's kind of like just this overlay thing that happens. And what I found, and this is this is my opinion on this, is that I think it increases my average loss. I don't want to say I think. I know it does, as far as my system is concerned, it does increase my average loss. So it's not without consequences. That's part one. Part two it's an overlay that produces costs because the trades that you're doing, they don't come for free, right? There's commission to be paid. There's bid offer to be paid. There may be slippage depending on how large you do the adjustment trade. So net-net, it needs to still come at a net benefit to my portfolio. And I've never, for, at least for me, I'm, I'm really not saying that it's an impossibility that some systems work better with that type of thing or some maybe they're also allocated to different type of markets equities for instance where this may be a more appropriate way of doing things but my diversified portfolio i don't see it and also and this is the final point personally i never found any benefit in being always at target yeah it, it may be nice to know that 
I'm targeting 12% vol and therefore my expected daily volatility is always, you know, whatever the expected daily vol is. If you have 12% annualized vol, I don't want to do the computation in my head right now. But I don't have any benefit of that. I, you know, I really don't mind it if my portfolio sometimes trades at 8 vol and then it goes for a period of time, weeks even, where, you know, it trades at 16 vol, just, just off, right? And it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't bother me that much. And, okay, sorry to give you that one final thing. But I guess, you know, you can, you can look at the thing and you will find instances where vol targeting improves the outcome because it just happens to be that you've reduced your size at a, at a turning point, right? And it's just been, but I guess this, this, is, this is luck. And there's as many trades, maybe even more, where the opposite is true. You know, where say, you know, you, you're putting on the short crew trade that we had on and... Uh, then the thing becomes more volatile on the downside and uh, you reduce your size, even though it's probably the biggest winner in your portfolio at that time. So there's, you know, pros and cons. Pick your side. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there, and I do think there is more, more than one way of looking at these things. So in many respects, uh, what uh, Moritz said, I agree with. I look at it, I actually like the point about the target, right? So one thing that I'm very much against, because I really don't think it makes sense, was, and and maybe this is still being done by some, but I, I remember distinctly that when what I consider as vol targeting came about, it was, oh yeah, we'll manage the risk so our fund or our strategy always have a volatility of 15%. That to me makes no sense, because why is that such a magic number? And it doesn't take into account whether it's a good environment or it's a bad environment for for trend following. So I don't think that makes any sense. You know, on our side, we do things differently to Moritz, admittedly. We're not targeting the volatility, but we are targeting a daily risk budget. So the question is, based on what? And of course, what we're trying to do, and this I think is kind of the holy grail, of trend following, but it's very difficult to do. And I'm not suggesting that we found the Holy Grail at all, but I think we've made progress because if you think about it, if you have a, you know, a static level of risk, which is something we had on our side for decades, right? Because we didn't know how to systematically scale up or down, you know, again, based on what. But if you have a static level of risk, you will, when there are no trends, you will have a lot of noise in your returns, which of course are not desirable. And you may also get deeper drawdowns because you're being stopped in and out of trades and you have a healthy level of risk on uh, because it's static, right? So we did that for 30 years or something like that. And, and you know, yeah, returns were great, but volatility was also great. Then we found a way to um, take into account what we're trying to assess, and that is, is it a good environment for trend following? Is it a bad environment for trend following? And of course, without giving the secret sauce away, there are different things that goes into that computation. One thing would be, of course, you know, how many trends do we see? You know, what's the volatility like? What's the correlation like? Things like that will have to be part of, of, of getting to that uh, determination. And so my point is that if you can get that right or ballpark right so that you can avoid having large risk levels during times where then there are no trends, 
But at the same time, you can find ways to adjust your risk budget so that you have healthy positions on when there are good trends. Then I do think actually it will produce a better return. Now, I did note what Mort said about that to him, it gives him larger average losses. The other thing you need to consider, of course, is does it also give you larger average winners? Because that's obviously uh, also part of the equation. So at least on our side, we found that we can deliver the same level of return with about 25% lower uh, volatility. So that is a true improvement uh, uh, in, in, in that sense. But it's not volatility targeting. It's very important. It's, it's, it's coming up with a risk budget that is variable rather than static. But as, as, as Moritz said, I'm not a fan of volatility targeting because I, don't, I think it's meaningless if you just say, oh, my portfolio should be 15% come hell or high water. You know, uh, that doesn't make sense to me. But, but, I, but I am actually, just to make it absolutely clear, I am in favor of not having a static position size at all times. And I'm also in favor of not necessarily looking at everything on a trade-by-trade trade basis. And I know this is a little bit controversial because I know Moritz does it, I know Jerry does it, and I have done it in my past. But I am, I am actually in favor of looking more on the exposure to the market. For me, it doesn't really matter whether it's one trade or 10 trades, but what is your exposure over time to a market? How is that made up based on the various models or sub-models? Those kind of statistics. So I guess I look at it maybe a little bit more holistically on a portfolio level, managing the budget risk on a portfolio level, and not so much on a trade-by-trade trade basis. I hope I haven't stepped on too many toes here, Moritz. No, not on mine. It's very difficult to step <laughs> on my toes anyways. Um, <laughs> You know, everybody trades in a different way. This is why yeah. this is why we have markets. This is why prices change because people have different opinions and they, yeah. you know, do things in a different way. And by the way, one thing I do, I can't remember if you and I talked about this or whether we talked about it offline or maybe we did it with Rob one day. Um, and that is, of course, I mean, there are other ways for you to weight trades. I mean, if I was using the way you're doing it, Moritz, for example, but I did want to try and maybe have a little bit of... of, of what's the right word to say? I mean, not always do it exactly the same, but trying to say, okay, this market really has some some great, uh, uh, you know, tendencies to trend or whatever. I mean, you could also build into your model that you would adjust position size based on, say, profitability of a certain market over a certain period of time. So if, for example, you're in a situation where, say, cocoa is just trading wonderfully, you know, maybe you could, uh, or I know you can, but I mean, maybe you would want to consider saying, okay, instead of taking a normal position size here, I, I do one and a half times normal position size. But then if you go through a period of time where markets or certain market is, is not being very profitable, maybe you do the reverse. You actually lower the this kind of the risk you allocate to that market. I mean, all I'm just saying, Noah, there are many ways of doing this, but I think your your test will will guide you to what, uh, what, what you feel comfortable with. Right. Okay, good. I've got just some performance numbers to recap, but uh, I wonder whether we should, should, do you want to lift? Should we talk about what we've been doing for the past couple of weeks with Rob, or is that too early? Let's wait one more week. <laughs> let, 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 let's just say that, you know, and you've mentioned this, there's this 
I mean, yeah, the little secret special project that we've been working on. But I think what's fair to say is we've got some really great names and guests that we had conversations with during the past two, three weeks, I guess. And um, I guess you'll enjoy listening to it. Yeah. Okay. That for sure we can say. And uh, and hopefully we can tell you a little bit more next week as we get ready to start publishing these conversations just in terms of performance-wise, and then we can see what, uh, what uh, final thoughts Moritz has today. Beta 50 index as a Thursday was just up a fraction for the month of July. Obviously, it's only a couple of trading days. Down 26 for the year. SockGen CT index down a quarter percent, down almost 3% for the year. The trend index down 35 bips, down 1.2% for the year. SockGen's uh, short-term traders index down 13 bips and up just shy of 3% for the year. The bridge alternatives down 77 basis points, down 2.22% for the year. And to put that into context, MSCI World up 1.12% for July so far and down 5.6% for the year. Any final thoughts, Moritz, before we... Enjoy the 4th people? of July weekend, stay safe with that virus and uh, happy trading next week. Yeah, absolutely. We do wish everyone who celebrates 4th of July the very best. And by the way, Thanks for the questions. Uh, do send them to info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to, to give you some answers from Moritz and me. Thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.